Hi, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you guys doing today? It's a lovely, lovely Sunday. It is indeed. And as always, thank you for sharing the next hour with us at Genealogy Adventures. Yes, thank you so very, very much. I want to um, just do some shout outs to people. Hey, um, don't. Oh, no, she tagged somebody. <laughs> anyway, I want to just say hello to all of our um, regular guests and new guests that are coming in. Thank you for watching us on E360 TV. Thank you for watching us live on, also on YouTube. So welcome, welcome to everybody. So you want to just jump right in? Let's just jump right in because this is a hot show. Yes, this is a hot topic <laughs> show. All right, so I am adding Miss Yael Yaya Gordon to the scene, guys. This is my girl. This is my sister from another mister. This is my uh, alumnus because she's also attending Jackson State. So, you know, <laughs> hey, we just got a whole tightness with each other. This is my girl. So, um, Yaya Yael Gordon is a historian and genealogist who specializes in interpreting antebellum histori history, genetic genealogy, and conducting oral history interviews. Always staying true to her Louisiana Creole and Cajun heritage, Yael has over 15 years of experience as a professional researcher with a special focus on the Deep South plantation history. Her expertise also includes repository research, collection, curation, exhibition installations, transcribing and indexing, cemetery preservation, database management, and conducting genealogy and history related workshops. Please, please, everyone, welcome my sister from another <laughs> mister, Miss Yael Yaya Gordon. How are you today? I am wonderful. And thank you for that wonderful introduction, Diane. You know, I absolutely love you. You definitely are my sister. I appreciate you so much. And Brian, thank you for having me on here. And everybody who's tuned in, bienvenue. Welcome in Louisiana. And my seat, thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. This conversation is absolutely necessary. Well, well I'm going to tell you right now, real quick, when we looked at our insights, about 25% was from Louisiana alone. Okay. That has never happened to us. Really? No. And people often forget about little country Louisiana, but we're not country Louisiana. We actually are the Mecca of the U.S. I'll say that outside of the 13 colonies. We were larger than what we were. So everybody I'll say is from Louisiana before they even know it. But just really, really excited to have you on the show because you know you're you're familiar with what we do and what we talk about. Yes. And a lot of the previous four seasons has been focused on people with ancestry to the east of the mm -hmm. Mississippi. So this season we've made a real effort to start looking at people's ancestry to the west of the Mississippi. Um, we have briefly touched on Louisiana and just can't wait to find out more. Yes. Awesome. And I'm so excited to tell you both more and so many others. I appreciate this conversation. So I guess to kind of dip our toes, toes in the water. So we know that Louisiana was, in terms of enslaved people, was comprised of two different sets of people. So people who were enslaved had a long history in Louisiana. And then the other population who were brought from the upper south to the lower south. And in your research and your experience, have you noticed a difference between those two populations of people in terms of, say, how they were enslaved, what they were doing, life, you know, life expectancy, that, you know, those sorts of things? Yes, I will definitely say there is a, a difference. Um, for most of the most of those in Louisiana, when we do our um, genetic genealogy, we do find that we have ancestral ties to places like Maryland, Virginia, D.C. area, of course, because of the massive um, slave trade that happened along that coast. And so, but as well, there's many up north in those same areas that find they have and they have fine relatives that are here in Louisiana. They're like, I've never been to Louisiana. Well, I've never, I, I've never been, you know, places where, where they are so in, in certain aspects, but the relation is there. I think the major difference that I would say would be, you, 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 you hit it on the nail, the life expectancy. In the South, the life is much more, um, it's a drastic type of lifestyle, the atmosphere, the climate, it plays so much into a person's life expectancy. 
sometimes we can have a heat index of 120 degrees Fahrenheit with 90 plus percent humidity. So when you're thinking about individuals working in those types of conditions, their life expectancy is extremely is, is extremely low. It's very, very limited. At the same time, the work is completely different. Most people, when they think about plantations, they automatically associate it with cotton. Yes, we have cotton country here. We have a lot of cotton plantations here in Louisiana, but the deep south of Louisiana is sugarcane. We have a very Caribbean type of climate, and so sugarcane actually flourishes extremely, extremely well here. We don't have the same type of um, continuous season for sugarcane as those in the Caribbean do, but it is still the same type of horrible conditions. And so a sugarcane plantation is probably one of the most harsh plantations for someone to even work on. It is a very dangerous job. You're, you're including, the, again, the environment, the, the climate, the type of harsh work, the, the, the brutality of the work in, in itself. It, it is much more extreme. People died so often when they're when individuals were purchasing enslaved people for sugarcane plantations, they typically bought more than what they needed because they knew they would not be surviving long. Mm. So the typical life expectancy of an enslaved person on a sugarcane plantation was the late 20s to early 30s. That's not very long at all. And so they died so much more for varying reasons, even diseases. When you have a lot of heat in the climate, humidity, diseases are rampant, yellow fever, dysentery, things like that. And so they died more often. And so those who were sold from the North, they did not want to come here. They knew, especially those who were already enslaved and they knew their family members were sold off or they heard ramblings of the South. They didn't want to get sold down the river. That was a death threat to them. And so they knew that once they get sold down the river, it was more than just not being able to return to find their relatives who may still be up there. It was because they're going to be worked to death. Cool. And I kind of have a two-part question. The second part of it is going to be about the, the kind of leading cause of death. Mm -hmm. But you touched on something that I hadn't really thought about. In the Upper South, the kind of wealth of a plantation owner was based on the increase or the children that an enslaved female in particular was going to have. So if people are dying younger in Louisiana than they are in, say, other parts of the slaveholding South, how did that factor in? Because clearly they don't have a, a long lifespan to have a lot of children. Well, the children part, the reproduction part, even the breeding part, that it still existed because enslaved people cost money. And the way it slaves, and excuse me, I'll tell the audience at right now, I use the term slave and enslaved very interchangeably. I'm a historian, so I'm using it from a historical mm -hmm. context. So I, I, you know, I try to explain the difference, but hopefully we're all able to um, understand what, I, what I'm saying, what I mean when I say certain words. So but, let me say this. Let me say this mm -hmm. right now. You don't have to apologize okay. or make an explanation or anything like that, because if they don't understand that, that that's not our issue. Not the audience. We, I, I understand. All, I appreciate that. We use those types of terms. Yes. And it, it's what happened during that time period. It's what it was. And so we speak for that particular type of thing. Thank you for saying that, because that is absolutely important to, for, for everyone to, to be aware of. Um, but those who were enslaved, they, they were still expected to reproduce constantly. So the ages would be so younger. You know, there, there are some times where an individual was, was maybe 21 years old and she already had three kids. She may not have survived after that fourth one. Um, her kids may, but enslaved persons, they were very expensive. And so after the importation then, so to speak, um, took place or became, um, you know, in, in, into law there, natural increase, of course, was the way to go. And so instead of buying more individuals, of course, they're going to breed those individuals. When I say breeding, that's just even as something as pairing two individuals together, not multiple people all the time. And so but the harsh reality is a lot of those children did not survive. So they're going to continuously having them have, have children, continuously. Those children, most of the children, they would have died from malnourishment. They're, especially for women out in the, in, in the, who works outside of, inside of the big house, okay? If they're working out in the fields, then they were only realistically, I'm not going to say allowed, but the typical span of them breastfeeding was about two years. 
women tried to use though that as a form of birth control. And so owners realized that they started to pick up on that. And so they would make them wean their child much earlier. Children, women, when they're out in the field, they're under the hot sun. They're going to get malnourished themselves. They, when a woman is dehydrated, they can't produce milk. So children are going to die. When they're also out in the field, they have the babies on their backs. Sugarcane plantations, they're on, mostly on their backs. And they're going to have them in the front because the women do a lot of bending, a lot of swinging of heavy tools, scythes, cane knives, machetes. They can't put them in a basket. They'll, they may get run over by a cart or even get bit by a snake that's crawling into a basket. I mean, these are cane fields. It's everything that's unimaginable in those fields, rats, snakes, everything. And so the babies, they will not have proper nourishment and they may catch diseases. Also, when the children are, say, toddlers, they can get into various type of mistakes, incidents, accidents that happen. Because some of them, they're being washed in a pool of other children typically by the eldest woman on the property who was watching all of them. Of course, she can't watch everyone's child all the time, but that was her responsibility. And things happen. A child can drown. They, Some of the little bit older children beyond toddlers, they were helping assist with bringing food and water to the fields for the individuals who were working out there. Accidents can definitely happen that way. Some of them were also working inside that dangerous sugar mill which brought its own destruction to those children. And, you know, we like to think that little fingers can get into little spaces. You know, how many times have one of our children dropped something and said, oh, your fingers are smaller than mine. Can you get that for me? So they're using, utilizing these children to clean out the grinding machines. That's little fingers and little spaces that can easily get cut off, hands that can get torn off, limbs that can get torn off. And so, but again, if one enslaved person dies, they buy another or they breed another. So the children did not always survive. And so that's why they were constantly creating them, not just for work purposes, but because they knew they were going to die. Okay. So were the planters making that much money that enslaved people could basically be disposable? It's like, eh, they died. I'll just get another one. Absolutely. Um, Sugarcane plantations, number one, again, is very different from cotton, okay? Cotton plantations sometimes... For, for instance, um, one of the largest slaveholders here in Louisiana in about 1860, he had about 709 individuals working on his plantation. Mm. That's a lot. That's a cotton plantation. As opposed to sugarcane plantation, it's going to sometimes, many times be far less than that. But sugar planters were very wealthy. They were extremely wealthy. They were the elite. Most of them were you know, French Creole, Creole French, and they had a lot of money. They were millionaires. The machinery cost a lot of money. And one would think that if they knew the work was so harsh, why work them so hard to whereas they died and have to purchase another? Well, that's the logical answer. But again, you have to remember that these people were disposable. Just get another one or have them continuously to have children. Or if they don't have enough enslaved people on their particular property, they're going to ask their neighbor. They're going to hire. They're going to be purchasing and doing contract work with these, their neighbors or their relatives to bring on enslaved people to their property to help with the amount of work. Many of these families were related. So they, they have them at their disposal. There are families and families and families of individuals that they always have the availability to have enslaved people. So, but just because they knew that they could die fast, there was a complete disconnection of them realizing that these were human beings. And so that part did not matter to them because the income was was the matter. Sometimes you have to lose money to make money. Now, the more that Donnie and I kind of study both our direct ancestors, where they came from, Virginia, Maryland, um, North Carolina, and South Carolina, we see little variances in terms of um, enslavers' practices, kind of how slavery was practiced within a state or a colony. What would you say were the biggest differences between being enslaved in the slavery system in Louisiana, as opposed to, say, Virginia, North Carolina, Maryland? Well, I would say one of the biggest difference, again, was the cultural difference, because Louisiana, it was primarily first a French territory, then also Spanish for a very small time, and then French again. And so that's around the Louisiana Purchase. And in the northern areas on the coastline, you'll have more American. Down here, 
Louisianians, they were mostly French, they didn't like Americans. And so there was a time when they really thought that by becoming part of the larger US, they were going to eliminate slavery. And so everyone was in a panic, like, oh my gosh, they're going to eliminate our income. And so there was a, a, a huge distrust, but also just as well, those who were American thought that the French here didn't have much sense. They thought we were we were less than par people. And I say we because a lot of individuals here in, in Louisiana, we have French ancestry. And they thought the French did, didn't have the intelligence to, to govern themselves. And so there was always a, a pushback. And so the those who were here in Louisiana had to kind of forcefully show that they still ran these operations. They still ran their plantations. And so they're going to, they're going to be again, a little bit more harsh. And they're also going to make sure they keep their money amongst their family and do business amongst their family, even including selling enslaved members to only those of their particular ethnicity or culture and not others. They're wanting to keep the money and the business inside of that family. And so that cultural difference is, is one that's, that is, is, it's been known throughout history that we have our own distinct culture, but it's just as well, even with our three persons of color, um, there's a large three person of color population. You look in places like New Orleans and there's three persons of color here that actually owned enslaved persons themselves. That slavery was a business. Anyone who can afford to would. And that was not always meaning that that person who was who was a free person of color owned their relatives. It was, again, a business. Um, there are very several families here that this has happened to, whereas you hear all the time that, OK, these people were their 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 relatives, their sons, their daughters. Not necessarily. Some of them were because, again, you had you, you purchased an individual from someone. Now you're the owner. But there were also enslaved persons who were not owned by these individuals. So. It's a big cultural difference, just as well as New Orleans. There were New Orleans is a different type of slavery than anywhere else. I'm not going to say they had more freedom, but they did not practice some of the same slavery operations as others did. It's more of a city type of um, atmosphere as opposed to being in the in the in the woods or in the swamps and in, in the bayous. So you dropped a little bombshell there, and I I, I have to pick that one up. Mm-hmm. So the Americans. <laughs> I think Donnie, you got a different bomb. There were a couple of bombshells there. I want to so cycle what about back the really. Americans like not like in Louisiana. The, uh, yeah, that just I mean, blew my that's, mind. Yes, that's what I wanted to ask because I mean, basically, we kind of asked France back in the Revolutionary War to be, you know, to help the revolutionaries. So the French were good enough for that. They knew that the French and the English had been fighting each other for like a thousand years by that point. So they I mean the French were no pushovers. They could clearly govern massive mm-hmm. co- massive colonies yes so why why did the americans think that they were so poor about governing here it's all about power it's all go back to goes back to money power and greed who can run and who can operate anything and so the french considered themselves the elite they were the aristocrats mm. they were the doctors the lawyers the attorneys um the planters with a lot of money with old world wealth and so now bringing in Americans taking over, see, there, there was, there's French laws, Spanish laws, and then again, French laws. Some of them were also Roman laws that, that dictated slavery in, uh, in, in Louisiana. And so by Americans coming in, now we have, okay, we're going under a completely different type of regulations and laws that are here. But there was always a consistent fight amongst the Americans and amongst French. And that even kind of went, it, it even further went into the, say, Creole and Cajun heritage that many of us um, share. And so it's it's an unfortunate battle of, again, of, of power, but the, the in governance, there was really a push against the American, Americanization in Louisiana because of again, mostly slavery. And that continued even to this day, there is sometimes there is not a, not a lot of French spoken here in Louisiana as much as it should be. A lot of the language sometimes has kind of died out, but there's organizations that are trying to implement and, and recapture and help the language sustain. You, you have African-Americans who speak French here, you know, speak Creole, some even speak Haitian French, Parisian French. And, but 
it's a heritage that we're trying to constantly recapture instead of being Americanized. Louisiana is, is Louisiana just kind of separated, set apart by itself. That's amazing. That's just utterly, you know, it's so funny because it actually reminds me of a time when I was driving, when I was doing Uber. And I tell y'all, I had the weirdest conversations in, in as an Uber driver. <laughs> but um, there was one person who was from Louisiana. Actually, it was two women. They were, they were visiting the D.C. area and they were from Louisiana. And they talked so badly about America as if louisiana was not in the in the in the middle of it and she was it like yeah she they talked so badly about it and they were yeah. speaking as as if just as if it wasn't there and they were like oh yeah your history is this and your history is that and i'm like but ain't it your history too yeah. And then, you know, as I'm going, as I'm going through it and I'm thinking all about it and everything, and I'm like, well, technically it is their history, but it isn't their history because they were a separate entity. So they still continue to see Louisiana as a separate entity. And it's amazing yes. to me. Yeah. Well, I guess it's kind of like the, the Southwest, <laughs> which was Spanish held until 1848. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just all just so amazing. So um, you got a lot of people. We got we got people up here that they're just you know giving out. I'm trying to put their comments up instead of reading you know mm-hmm. some of them. Mm-hmm. But I want to stay you know on focus as far as some of the yes German laws too. Absolutely, I, I, I'm glad someone mentioned that and pointed that out um, because sometimes when we speak um, about say Creole heritage. Um, they forget about the Germans. And because so many people have the wrong indication or wrong um, history, research and history, they think of what Creole is. And it's so much more than what we've been taught. And so I definitely cannot forget about the German laws and also German Creoles just as well that are here. And actually, let's let's just start with the basics. What is a, Cre- what is a Louisiana Creole? Well, it is, first of all, let me point out, it's not a race. Okay, we're not a race. We are a distinct ethnic community uh, with our own ethnicity. We have French, Spanish, African, you know, in, in our in our in our ancestral lines. Some Native American, and so being Creole, it is someone who has colonial ties to the colony, to Louisiana. So someone, for instance, can be a French Creole. When I say French Creole, that their parents were born in France, but they were born here. They're French Creole. German Creole is just the same. A when you look at many of the enslaved documents that that are on in these probate records or these wills, secession records, you'll see Creole slave. And someone will automatically think, oh, that person was mixed. No, they weren't. It will literally tell you if that person was mixed or not, if they were, say, a mulatto. Um, but Creole, they were born here. And so we definitely have a, um, a distinct community in heritage and even a language that is detectable. And Ancestry um, DNA actually, th- th- thankfully now, um, has our population on in, in their DNA matches. So you can actually find that ethnic community in the DNA match. So there are white Creoles, black Creoles, again, German Creoles, even Cajun Creoles. And so it's it's very special to us. And it doesn't not mean someone who is of mixed ancestry as their one parent is white, one parent is black. We all come in various shades, various colors. Um, we're not all fair skinned. We're not all have the blonde hair, blue eyes and straight hair and pointed nose kind of thing. It's a lot of colors and it still goes into a lot of that, because, but that's because of myths. But when you look at different families and different populations, families marry into other families. Just like people marry into certain families to keep money, certain people marry into families to keep certain genes. We do it now. We create designer babies every single day. Every single day, people do the same thing. And so it's it's our heritage. It's our language. And it is, again, nothing about race. It's our foods. And so being a Louisiana Creole is, is very special to us. Um, not everyone here is Louisiana Creole. And that's also an interesting point because outside of Louisiana, basically you're either black, mulatto, or white. Mm-hmm. The 
I haven't really seen much where Virginians were concerned about whether someone was an octoroon or a maroon or whatever. How I can't remember how many different words Louisiana had, but it was like way over eight. How, I mean, how many different specific words did they have to describe a person's complexion? It is a few. I have seen several. I have seen those what the, what the complexions are talking about. Someone who is of who is say a red bone or someone who has a red undertone to them, or completely you know with a cold colored skin. And so these words and terms were used, but they were not always used. I like to point that out. And I think Dr. Um, Landry does a wonderful job in kind of explaining a lot that people what people assume within Creole history and even African-American history or, or, or slavery in Louisiana to describe individuals. Some of the things that we may associate with it, it may be a couple of cases and not overall, but it really all depends on how someone themselves is describing someone. Same instance when if someone was a mulatto and further down the line, not during slavery, but further down the line, you'll see that person listed as Black instead of mulatto or, or mixed. And so it's, it's really up to the interpretation of the person. But early on, yes, there were designations of different you know, different shades and who had an Indian um, parent, who had a white parent. And so it just kind of, there are panels and photographs of, of kind of explanations on that. I didn't, I didn't bring that today and provide it to Danya, but at a later time, I definitely can um, provide that to her. So you all can have a further conversation you know, about that. And I have to ask, was there a pecking order? Each one of those descriptors, mm -hmm. was there like a, was there a caste system? There's always a caste system. Slavery is always a caste system. Um, what I'm going to point out, and we take it how we want to take it. There is a lot of speculation or even assumptions or suggestions that those who were, say, of, um, had a European ancestor were always initially treated differently or they were working in the house. That is not true. An able body is going to go wherever that person wanted them to go and where they want to work. And so that necessarily means they were always in the house. Number one, you have to remember about the, the women of the house. They're not going to want certain type of women that they know that their brother or their husband or their son has fathered a child with or their child is theirs in their house. They might be subject to going out into the field. Did Colorism instances happen? Absolutely. We have to remember that the enslaved population, where they were people, people every single day get into disagreements, get into various arguments. And so there was also violence amongst themselves within the enslaved population for whatever reasons. And that could have been that very well could have been contributed, attributed to um, colorism or someone being treated fairly than the other. But the fair treatment or the perception of fair treatment was purposeful. Because, say, for instance, you have a cabin with two families in it. One family of three may get 10 chickens from the owner. The family who has 15 may get one chicken. Now these families are fighting. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the family on, on the, uh, with the three children are better, but they're going to act. They may act like they are better, but the person who only got one chicken, that family, is going to think, okay, well, these people think they're they're better than us. And so that's going to cause confusion. And that was purposeful because you have to cause dissension to push an agenda. And I'm going to bring Donnie in on this one. One of our first books that we did for a book club was called The House of Bondage, Charlotte, you know, about Charlotte Brooks and it happens in Louisiana. And we're, re we're reading this book and there are times when both of us had to put the book down because it was so deeply, the histories being displayed were just really deeply disturbing and it seemed like the violence meted out towards enslaved people in louisiana was way more harsh mm -hmm. than other places that we've been researching is that it is that kind of a fair assessment and i would say it's a fair assessment um i say it's a fair assessment but i also say again is is up to up to interpretation because many times when we look at these look at um old writings or if someone is writing from a from a viewer's perspective, it is what they believe. And sometimes people can give someone a better story than what they, what's actually going on. They may say someone treated their slaves really, really great. And and we're thinking, how does that work? That you, you can't treat an, a, a slave, you know, in a great manner. 
But I will say that I think one of the reasons for the harsh treatment, again, is because if anybody, if you all have not been to Louisiana, life down here with this weather alone is harsh. You don't want to be outside. We're beyond 80 degrees now, and it's October the 24th. We're not going to get cold maybe until January. And so they had to force these people to constantly work over and over and over again. I'd also like to point out that many French, even some of the Jesuits, they were fearful of what happened during the Haitian Rebellion. Okay. Many of the enslaved there, you know, they rebelled. And so they some car, you know, killing owners. And some of the, those owners were able to, to flee here. Okay. They were very scared and fearful of the slave population because they knew the uprising could always happen again. So by giving more force and being more brutal and harsh to them, they felt that that kept them in line. And so when one person has made a mistake, it could be as simple a mistake as not cleaning out the water in a ditch because it rained. They're going to make that person out of an example just to make the others not do the same thing or make them fearful of what could happen if they make the slightest mistake. And then also also always changing things so they won't get together and try to rebel. So punishment was definitely given. It was not earned and it never fit the crime. But that again, that was very purposeful in order to keep them in order. And many, many of them, they have again become so disassociated with Punishment. They didn't think that, number one, Black people could feel pain. And so for them, it's, okay, you're going to beat this individual. It's not, it's, they're faking it or it's not going to affect them. They didn't look at them as, as human. But in order to keep them in line, to keep them working, they had to break these individuals. You are, like, when I tell you, first of all, I'm going to tell you, I love my cousin because he knows when I'm thinking on something. And <laughs> I was literally thinking about the house of bondage the entire time that we were talking and speaking. But there's a, you know, there are things in the house of bondage that was actually explaining everything that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so when you talked about the swinging of the, the, sh the, the sickle and, um, you know, the machetes and all of that, mm -hmm. you started to put in perspective what the book was talking about and yeah. it really it really kind of almost reached down and grabbed the book but i had to remember i'm on screen right <laughs> I, look i got mine in my purse yeah <laughs> you have really like put that all into yeah. perspective because there are things that happened in in the book where she talks about because just to let you know in case you don't that particular book was actually written by a former teacher back in the early 18 well in the mid 1800s mid to late after the civil war so i'm going to say late 1800s and she was she was interviewing different mm -hmm. enslaved people so right. this was this was exactly what was going on right and, and before said, the ex-slave narratives yes i mean yes, yes before the slap the narrative mm -hmm. when i say you are on point you are on point yeah. So what I want to do now is really kind of jump into those two that you wanted to talk about because we're already 34 minutes in and okay. I don't want to miss anything gotcha. <laughs> that you have to say. So um, which one do you want to go on first? Um, well, I'm going to kind of jump into talking about a little sugar cane and I'll let you pull up these, these, these plantation maps. And those here from Louisiana, I'm sure you have seen these, This especially one of this map, one of the maps that I'm going to show. Um, if you have not Find this map. I have three life size. Is this um, Norman? Yes, the Norman's chart of the Lower Mississippi River. I have three life size, you know, um, panels of these maps. And somebody's like, "Why am I coming to your house with a plantation map?" Because I'm researching them. That's what I do from the ceiling to the to the floor. It's amazing. Now, I like to point out number one again, sugarcane. It's part of the Lower Louisiana. It's very distinct to lower Louisiana because, again, we have a more of a Caribbean climate, but also we have a lot of waterways. We're here on the Mississippi River. The, you have the levees and things like that. So if you click on that, the, the, the one that enlarges it, 
uh, one more over. Yep, that one. And then you can kind of zoom in and out. Now this map here shows just how many plantations at this particular mm. time when this map was actually created. Um, there were along the you know Lord Mississippi. There's very several parishes. My my, my family. Half of my family comes from the lower parishes. Some of them come from the middle parishes. And so I like to kind of go in and point, and if you look at the top right of the map, you look at Iberville Parish, okay? Iberville Parish, um, notably, um, it's a wonderful place. Uh, many of us have ancestors that come from uh, Iberville Parish. Um, some uh, come from the St. Gabriel side, some from the Maringouin side. And if you've heard of Iberville Parish, yes, Maringouin and Iberville, excuse me, St. Gabriel are both in the same parish. It's on two opposite sides of the river, even by Ugula, okay? And Maringouin is very, very important because of the enslaved people who were sold, town, sold from Georgetown University. Um, myself and a few other cousins who are actually on this call are descendants of some of the enslaved people who were sold from Georgetown. And they came to the Maringouin side, mostly the Maringouin side of Iberville Parish. But if you look at all of those land plots, those names, those are plantation owners. Where my, where my house is now, family house, it sits on a plantation. It sits on a former plantation. So all of these places, all of these, these lands along the river road, especially where a lot of these chemical plants are, say Syngenta plant, Formosa plant that are now um, doing big business in rural communities, African-American communities, uh, especially in the river parishes uh, further down. It was like, like St. James Parish, um, St. John the Baptist. Um, it's called river parishes, but you'll probably um, hear those of us who care call it Cancer Alley because these plants are building up on top of old sugarcane plantations where there are probably someone's ancestors buried in the fields. As a matter of fact, I know there are people's ancestors buried in the middle of cane fields. And they, they prevent access to the sites, but these were where old plantations were, and they're putting chemical, harmful chemicals in the community. Rise St. James is a really good organization that is trying to help fight against um, some of this. But if you look at all of these different lands, all these people were slave owners. Mm. They had mm. lands. They had they owned people. Some owned ten. Some owned two. Some owned a hundred plus. It varies. Many of these plantations no longer exist. Weather, um, flooding, hurricanes. Um, again, being bought out by big, big businesses. Um, they, they they no longer exist. So there are a few that actually still do exist and provide tourism on their places. Not all of them actually provide tourism that talk about the enslaved community, but there are several of them that do. And I do work for some, some plantations, um, some of the ones that are still in existence, but also no longer in existence. I'm researching the lost ones to talk, help create and correct the narrative um, about difficult history about the enslaved people. Can and I just jump in? Yes. Can I just jump in really quick? Sure. This map looks different than other maps that I've seen for the Upper South. These mm -hmm. prop these properties are like really long. Yes, they're, they're basically rectangular but very uh -huh. narrow. Yes, what's the, what's the reason behind that? For instead of being wide, they're more long, and you have neighboring plantations. And most of these people are inter they are they are related. Okay, so their land is kind of someone else's land also, just as well. But the long stretch of land is because they're planting mostly sugarcane on the back end of the property the then you have to reach the riverfront that was being on the river is a prime property the mississippi mm -hmm. river right there you have the levees that were actually being built and so the homes oversaw the levees but you also those of us who live here now um we know that okay there's a levee and there's the river back then there was the land the levee and, and more homes. So they're on both sides of the river. They even had churches on the opposite side of the levee. So if you can walk to the top of the levee and see homes. And right now, the levees are about 25, 30 feet tall. They were um, done that way by the Army Corps engineers after the flood of 1927, okay? Um, the great flood um, that happened. And so, because originally the, the levees are only about five to six feet tall, but the enslaved community was those who were constantly building the levees. They were help building levees to prevent flooding. Okay, so along the other side, there's a lot of steamships and boats, but there were also homes and plantations and churches and post offices on the opposite side of the levee. Now we can't have that because everything completely floods. So 
in burial spots, there are some people that are, I can guarantee they're buried under the levees because of pushback on the land purposes. Well, so I know you have another question, image. Quick question. What, what, what are the different colors? Mm. Um, so scroll out and it'll kind of give you which ones were cotton, which ones were oh. um, okay. sugar cane. See that up there? Yes, and it kind of shows you the oh. boundaries of okay. the actual areas and which you know which are which the where the waterways are. Okay? okay. So in by 1751, Jesuit priests actually brought sugarcane to Louisiana. And it wasn't until about 1795, 96 that Etienne de Bore um, was one of the first planters to have a plantation to produce granulated sugar on a, like a commercial scale, on a large scale. And his plantation is now where Audubon Zoo is in Audubon Park and Tulane University. So many of these places that are in areas like that have, have a history to reckon with. It goes, still goes back to slavery. Um, and so sugarcane is an old crop. And before that, it was a lot, a lot of indigo, but you know, Sugarcane, sugarcane became white gold. Now, sugar cultivation, it kind of, it goes up about 15 miles above Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is kind of in the corner, kind of almost not, definitely not in the middle of Louisiana, but everything under there is mostly sugarcane. And so the extent of sugarcane properties, you're looking at thousands and thousands of dollars being spent on a daily basis, on a yearly basis for these individuals because the equipment was very, very expensive. Not everyone could afford it. That's why I say it's a rich man's crop. Everyone, again, it's distinct because the climate in middle Louisiana, North Louisiana is different from that in lower Louisiana. So cotton doesn't grow too well in the deep South. So we're not gonna touch cotton, but we could do sugarcane. And sugarcane, sugar, once you get sugar, everybody wants it. You send it all, ac all across the world. And so, they would create these um, plantations and have these sugar mills on their property and so they can cultivate their own sugar and molasses. Now, just a little bit about of the typical work day, say, in for a sugarcane plantation. Um, January to September, they're out, say, digging ditches, building the roads, building the levees. Um, clearing the irrigation systems, the canals, things like that. Um, and also, you know, cutting wood, trees and stuff for wood for fuel. Now come October to December or sometimes mid-January, that's when they get into what they call the grinding season. And that was a season where as all hands on deck, there is no off time. So usually for, for the first part of the year, the enslaved persons, um, they worked, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day. That's still a lot if they're working out and, you know, with their children at home, babies at home. But in grinding season, they were working 18 to 20 plus hours a day. And not all of them worked in shift work. Some, some plantations allowed them to work in, say, shifts, but not all of them did, depending upon who that owner was. Whatever the owner wanted to do, that's what they did. And so they're working 18 to 20 hours a day every single day, seven days a week from sunup to sundown. So basically from can't see to can't see. So they're completely exhausted all the time. But the fear of death, the fear of getting them getting brutalized by the owner or getting killed by the owner or getting sold away was always being held over their head. So they knew they had to work. There was no real incentive of them doing anything. So they, when we talk about, say, holidays for the enslaved people, that wasn't necessarily a norm. They didn't have a Christmas off. There was no Christmas for these people. They may have had one day before the grinding season started for harvest day in order to try to, you know, get everyone happy and get them all in a good mood, but they knew what was coming. So for them during the grinding season, they are out in the fields every single day. They are cutting the cane. They're going through the cane fields. They're using, again, scythes, machetes, cane knives. They're using the oxen and mule carts to go through there. And so when sugarcane is, is produced, it's about six to eight feet tall. It's very, very small spaces to see in between. Some had three feet in between. Some had up to 15 feet in between. It just depends on how big the property is, okay? So it's very hard to see. 
So those individuals had to be mindful of who was next to them, who was cutting something, because it's easy for them to lose a limb. It's easy for them to lose their heads. You can't see in those fields. But once they cut that sugar cane, it's still a, a harsh process because it takes about 24 hours for it to go bad. And it cannot freeze or it'll spoil. So they had to hurriedly cut it, continuously cut it down, and they had to bring it to the mill for um, processing purposes. Danya, I sent you a couple of pictures of what inside of a mill looks like, sugar mills. Oh, you did? Yes. Okay, I'm getting ready to... Is, oh, is that's okay. Yes, it's in the email. There, there, there's oh, okay. a couple of um, photos in there, and while I, while, she, while she's pulling that up, um, just the starting process. Um, they're bringing these loneliest oxen and mule carts to go to the mill to after the sugarcane is chopped up. And number one, they never cut all the sugarcane down at one time. They actually left some for each year just in case something actually happened. So it all wasn't always chopped off, chopped down at the same time. But when they get to this mill, they're going to start off with the grinding process. That is grinding the sugarcane up um, by machinery that had no stop or panic buttons. And so anything could happen while it's chopping the, this, the sugarcane stalks up. Again, someone can easily lose a limb. It can catch that person into that grinder and chop them up. If that happened, they just cleaned it up and they moved. They kept, they kept working. Then it's put onto a, a roller to kind of squeeze some of the, the juicing out of it. And there have been um, planters who have written their diaries about individuals getting stuck in the rollers and they're crushed to death. And I've seen that especially happen with a lot of the women because, yes, they're working in that sugar mill just as well. And then there's a furnace burning inside that mill. So the temperatures inside that mill can be 160 degrees Fahrenheit plus on a daily basis. And this furnace is burning, say, 24 hours a day. And that is a lot. That, that's extreme and excessive heat. Now, that's just a photograph of individuals who may have been working in a sugar field, um, sugarcane field. And that's not necessarily dedicated to slavery because these people were still working in sugarcane fields and mills post-slavery as sharecroppers. I still have ancestors who were in the 1930s and 1940s who were doing the same thing. Um, so it was that was just the life, and that was what they knew how to do. Now, when they're in this process, one of the most dangerous parts of the process is what they call the Jamaica train. And that consisted of individual sugar kettles. Um, the largest one would have been six feet from edge to edge, okay? Why? And the smallest would have been about three feet. And so they're what they're doing is they're boiling the sugarcane inside of these huge kettles. And my sister um, Gaynell Banks Brady over our mammies actually just, just was getting her sugar kettles delivered to her property because she's uh, operating a, a living history museum. And so she does this work. And so when she gets these sugar kettles, it's going to be extremely amazing because they're they're very expensive but they're cast iron and they last. And so they had to boil these sugar, um, the sugar cane inside of these kettles over and over and over again. And had this to, so they typically the had the men working with that part because the there had to be the, the boiling right here. Yes. So they had to be some of the strongest ones because they had to, and they still had to wear, no matter how hot it was in there, long sleeve shirts, long pants and leather shoes, because it could be death by scalding third degree burns. Again, this is boiling. Like if anyone had ever, cook pecan candy and Louisiana would say pecan it's not pecan it's pecan um then you know how hot and scorching and it will burn you it will completely take the skin off and they're boiling in these huge six feet pots you know and so they're picking it up and transferring it to the next pot same thing next pot next pot now free person of color Nerva Rio he actually um invented um well enhanced the 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 pan process for sugarcane cultivation, but that wasn't until, you know, later in the 1800s, later, much later in the 1800s, by 1840s, I believe. And he lent his inventions to various planters um, in, say, on St. James Parish. And Valcor Arm, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the persons that he actually lent to his, some of his, one of his inventions too. Valcor Arm had a huge plantation in, um, in St. In Saint James Parish. And so this process, from start to finish, by the time they walk in and walk out, they're probably walking out on a stretcher if they even survived. That's just how harsh the work is again. And sometimes they would have small children working inside of the sugarcane um, 
mills is very, very dangerous. So many of them actually died, but they knew they could not stop because stopping meant excess punishment for them. Mm. So again, working the 18 to 20 hours a day with very limited fooding and full foods and waters, they may have been fed twice a day at designated times and they could not just stop for water and food breaks or that would also lead to punishment. Mm. So the life for them would be extremely, it's, it's something very different from any other type of plantation that would have been in America, like I said. And they, they knew that from, also from the Haitian um, rebellion. But then those, those individuals, they were rebelling against the work, the harsh um, treatment. Also, they had no clothes, no shoes, no water, no housing. So planters here realized, okay, if we give them a little bit of something, that'll make them work harder. Don't take away everything. And I'm focusing on that word little, because we've already established that these people made millions off of sugar, but they gave their workforce the the bare minimum. Yes, they absolutely did. And so in Louisiana, Louisiana was the only only, um, state that had a law that actually, I'm not going to say protected kids, but protected kids. So children um, 10 and under weren't legally allowed to be sold away from their mothers. Planters still did it. At first, the law was 14 and under, then they changed it to 10 and under, okay? But that gave planters an incentive to say, okay, well, we're allowing you to keep your kid, so just work, because that mother knew at any given time that she did not obey what she was, what that owner or his mistress or whoever said, that can mean her child at five years old getting snatched from her. Would that have benefited the owner monetarily? No, but it would have made her do what he wanted her to do. So there were a little small incentives, even incentives such as allowing them to have gardens to plant for their own food purposes, giving them monies when they went out and chopped extra wood. And so they were able to use that money to say buy additional um, clothing because they only received typically two pairs of clothes per year, summer set and winter set and a hat. So they gave them something so that lessened stuff out of the owner's pocket. So it, but it made these individuals think that they had something and when you give a person, when a person has something, who has nothing to have, nothing to lose. But when they have something, they have something to lose. Mm-hmm. Now, you made me think of something, <clears throat> because no matter where you were enslaved, enslaved people had to have ingenuity because they got mm-hmm. next to nothing and they had to make stuff out of it. But I'm really curious. You know, I'm thinking hot sugar syrup, and I'm thinking hundreds of degrees. It's popping, it's splattering, getting on people's clothes and skin. What types of kind of homegrown medicine were the enslaved people making and how how African influence was that? It was a lot of African influence um, for that. And so many of these women um, who had, say, had learned medicinal practices from their mothers or grandmothers, they would be going and looking out in the woods to find their own herbs um, to, to create different um, salves and things like that, um, even different roots. Um, I'm, not, I'm not speaking of conjuring roots, but actually like like plant roots and things like that mm-hmm. to assist um, because they didn't have much else. Yes, there were doctors around, but the doctors kind of like the owner associate the owner with an employer. Okay, bad choice, but an employer mm-hmm. who pays for someone's insurance. They're only paying so much, and so they would many times pay a doctor in that community for to do farm services on their enslaved community. If that person, and they could only contact that doctor for that enslaved person if it was an extreme circumstance, okay? So if they needed something else, that enslaved person would have to come out and provide something that they had, say a couple of coins or something in order to pay for those services. So the insurance that, the medical insurance, so to speak, that the owners had was not, was not much. And again, it was for extreme purposes. And for many of those that worked on a sugarcane plantation, the doctors, they, it was a learning process because they weren't, they didn't all go to school. And so it was a father who taught his son and whose son and his son, things like that. And so the, the go-to a lot of time was to cut a limb off. That's what they did. If the person gets their hand smushed, they're going to cut that limb off. Now that does not mean that that person who got their, limb cut off, had to stop working because they were still going to have to find a, find a job to do, even if that meant herding cattle. They were still going to be working. 
So the enslaved women, they would be utilized to assist with what the doctor could not. And even with the, the, the midwives, the sick nurses, they're the ones who took care of the enslaved women, especially who were giving birth. They did not necessarily go to a sick house that was typically on the plantation for the enslaved people because a lot of diseases are in there. And so the owners started to realize, okay, there's diseases in there. We don't want this lady to lose this baby. So that means this woman may have her child in the middle of a ditch or a cane, mm-hmm. but she was still being taken care of by a sick nurse or a midwife who was able to assist. And the doctor was called only if you know she had an extreme birthing type of situation. But there are so many different types of herbs and medicines that we have used culturally and ancestrally that people still use today. And even kind of going into a lot of spiritualism, there's things that we carry or, or we do or we say or, or eat or drink that we feel that's going to help our health wise. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm, you know what? So you, you got to come back because we didn't even get to the second one and mm-hmm. the time is like almost over and even Gina Lewis was like, hey, great information. Time flew. We I'm for it. Come back I'm for it. Too. So, uh, yeah, you got to come back because you have like, Lord have mercy. I mean, I, I'm, I'm at a point now where I need to talk to somebody that knows information about northern plantations to see if it was worse than. I mean, because we have we have comments up here that are saying that some of our enslaved people from the north were sent to the south mm-hmm. for punishment mm-hmm. and i'm like what <laughs> it's just it's it's a it's yeah. amazing your story is amazing just what you know and you guys she does this when louisiana is up and running she she's one of those am i right to say this You're yeah absolutely person. i'm one of those persons even when it's not running i'm still you know i'm still out in the fields i'm digging i'm looking for burial sites i'm looking for plantation sites uh, i'm still hurricane ida kind well COVID, i'll say kind of stopped a lot of tourism so i teach on the enslaved history in communities on various plantations however tourism that's part of still part of tourism and it's and it kind of slowed that down and then now this year a couple months ago we had hurricane ida so a lot of these areas especially that i work in they've been devastated by by ida you know no power clean water things like that and so but that does not mean just because there is a wrench does not mean that research stops i never let it stop me well i i'm just so excited that you are here and that we are going to i'm excited to be here and, and we, you got to come back we got to set this date now unfortunately i, I mean we got to figure out this date brian because she has to come back we gotta, <laughs> she does we again i want to stress to everybody these are not presentations or or um webinars this is an actual TV show. We want to make sure you understand this is an actual TV show and it's free to you and you get the opportunity to ask the questions that you need to ask. So definitely remember that. And can you get my email address out, please? I see someone asking, how do they contact me? Okay, because I can't type it in for some reason. It's the ancestor key at gmail.com. So the T H E ancestor key at gmail.com. And I believe that's coming. Awesome. So yes, we will definitely have you back for part two because again, <laughs> there's so much that we I weren't able to cover. About this stuff. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what I love about doing the show is you know it's we're having a conversation and as as you're listening to someone tell you something that you're hearing for the first time, yeah, we kind of go off script a little bit because you'll say something and it's like, oh wait a minute, I didn't yeah. know anything about that. I need to ask this follow up question. Oh, so wait. Think- no, you're not V. Just V. Oh, it's just V? Yeah, V. Okay. So in the closing minutes of the show, thank you, Yaya, so much for joining us. Thank you, everyone at home, for joining us. And next week, we have another barnstormer. We have Kevin Borland from Borland Genetics. If you've ever sat there and thought, if I only had my three times great-grandmother or grandfather's DNA, who would that connect me to? Well, you can do that virtually, and you can do that through Borland. And if you tune in next week, 4 p.m. on a Sunday, Kevin will walk you through it. And it is awesome. Thank you. Yes, it I is. appreciate it's- y'all.
Now you, we appreciate you. So thank you yep. so much for joining us. We thank are you. at time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Yaya, and we'll see you next thank week. Thank you. Have a good one. You Bye. Too. Bye.